Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com plus. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This week, the space mission that changed how we see the universe. So I said to my new boss, well, you know, my thesis project didn't work, but we should try it in outer space. And physicists cast doubt on a 50-year-old theorem about magnetism. This is a very famous theorem that we would regard that as a law, right, So, which you cannot break. Plus hints of the first humans in America. This is The Nature Podcast for April the 27th, 2017. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Immigration is a hot topic in America right now, and no, not just because of Donald Trump. The archaeological community is interested in when the very first humans migrated into America. Various bits of evidence point to Homo sapiens moving east from Siberia into Alaska and down into the rest of America around 14 or 15,000 years ago. There are claims of archaeological or genetic evidence for even older movements of people, 20, 30 or even 40,000 years ago, but this is still controversial. Now a new claim is blowing even these dates out of the water. Shamli Bundell finds out more. Despite California's sunny modern climate, it was once an icy wilderness, home to ancient Ice Age creatures like mammoths and mastodon, hairy relatives of elephants with shaggy hair and long tusks. We know this because, now and again, construction workers stumble across their bones. One such site was accidentally uncovered back in the early 90s, and Tom Demeray of the San Diego Natural History Museum was called in to investigate. I first visited the site the day it was discovered. I was at the museum, and and, uh, field paleontologist Richard Cerruti was out at a freeway construction site and had discovered a partial skeleton of an American Macedon. Tom headed over to the site to meet Richard, whom the site was later named after, and to have a look at the mastodon bones. It didn't take long for the team to realise that they had found something quite unusual. The skeleton is buried in a fine-grained sediment, and it's not unusual to find fossils in fine-grained silt layers. What is unusual to find them in association with large rocks? There were a number of large cobbles at the site. Now, fine silt is usually left by slow-moving water, but the cobbles were too heavy to have been washed there by a gently flowing stream. There was nowhere nearby that the rocks could have come from. So how did they get there? And that wasn't the only mystery. A few choice mastodon bones seemed to have been smashed while still fresh. These included thick, strong bones such as the thigh bones, while other bones, including the more delicate ribs, were intact. 
it seemed unlikely that wind, water or animals trampling over them would have left such specific breakages. Looking at the pattern of how the rocks and bones at the site were distributed started to reveal a possible answer. And as the excavation proceeded over a five-month period, we found interesting concentrations of bones and rock concentrated in two distinct clusters. The two clusters each had a heavy cobblestone at their centre, with pieces of broken bone and rock scattered around each one. It looked like someone had used the heavier rocks as hammers and anvils to smash the bones open. The only plausible hypothesis we kept coming back to was that humans were processing Macedon bones at this site. They're breaking the bones, and that material that they would break would be raw material for making bone tools. Tom's team were excited to have found evidence of humans interacting with a mastodon, something unusual for this part of California. But it was also not that surprising. There are other sites in America where humans were interacting with the Ice Age mammals that still roamed the continent, back when humans turned up around 14 or 15,000 years ago. Now, this excavation was back in 1992. So why are people getting excited about it now? Nature editor Henry G, who handled the paper, joined me in the studio to explain. In 25 years, they haven't been able to get a good radiocarbon date for this site, which you'd expect if it was only a few thousand years old. But using, you know, uranium thorium, using radiometric dates, they finally found a good date of around 130,000 years ago, which is phew, 10 times the age of anything we'd have found of human activity in the Americas. So 130,000 years old compared to 15,000-ish. That's a huge leap, so it's pretty exciting to think there could have been people in North America that long ago. But in the context of where humans were in the rest of the world at that time, it's a slightly wacky idea, isn't it? It is slightly wacky because we don't really know of any humans, any modern humans, outside Africa until about 130,000 years old. And just to say that there were modern humans outside Africa 130,000 years ago would be quite uh, startling. Um, so whatever these humans were, they might have been early modern humans that um, got there before we ever realised modern humans got out of Africa, or they could have been some earlier form of human, you know, some sort of Homo erectus. I mean, there were loads and loads of earlier hominins all over the place, uh, in the old world, certainly, for a very, very long time. So it's not inconceivable uh, that there was some hominin activity in the Americas a very long time ago. It's just nobody's really looked for it because people have assumed that it wouldn't be there. And what was your reaction when you first saw this paper? As a nature editor, um, I'm working at the very cutting edge of science. So occasionally one does get papers that are pretty startling. And then you have to get them assessed on the evidence. So you sent it off to be assessed by the referees of the paper. And what were their reactions? The referees' reactions was surprisingly welcoming. Some of them said privately that they didn't really believe it. But then, of course, they also know that just because you don't believe it doesn't mean it can't be right. But all the actual evidence checks out. It's just rather startling. So who knows what will happen? Uh, w would you care to take a guess? Now, goodness me, this is sticking my neck out here. I think people will reassess archaeological sites that have been found earlier and try and see if some of the evidence fits earlier human activity in the Americas. Now, of course, 
when I see um, evidence of human activity, you know, I actually want to see human bones, and that would settle it. Uh, but of course, we have to work with what we have. And certainly in the archaeological record, um, uh, evidence of actual humans is very rare, but evidence of human activity is slightly more, um, well, slightly less rare. Thanks, Henry. If this does turn out to be true, it's a huge change to what we thought we knew about where humans were evolving and moving around the planet. Let's have a final word from Tom Demeray. Like most scientific endeavours, uh, a discovery like this poses sometimes as many questions as it answers. We don't know what species they were. We don't know how they arrived here. We don't know how long they stayed here. We don't know how they're related to modern humans, if, if at all. Um, and those are really interesting questions. But although our study can't really answer them at this point, uh, it does serve as an interesting piece in this puzzle, exploring the evolution of humans on this planet. That was Tom Damaray of the San Diego Natural History Museum, as well as Henry G. talking to Sharmini Bundell. Tom's paper and a news and views are on nature.com forward slash nature this week, and there's also a mini documentary film about the find. That's on youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Still to come in the research highlights, conditions may be right for life on one of Saturn's moons, and salt may be making life tricky in some North American lakes. But first, reporter Davide Castelvecchi looks back at a picture that changed the way we see our universe. This week marks the 25th anniversary of a landmark discovery in cosmology. On the 23rd of April 1992, NASA unveiled a picture painted in microwave light. This was the first image of the cosmic microwave background, the afterglow of the Big Bang. It revealed what the universe looked like shortly after its birth, the universe's baby picture. John Mather was one of the key astrophysicists behind this image. His interest in the microwave background went back to his student years when he was hunting for a thesis topic. And I looked around and I found a project which was to build an apparatus to go up on a high-altitude balloon. So that was my main thesis project, and we built it and it did not work. And then I got a job at NASA, so I said to my new boss, well, you know, my thesis project didn't work, but we should try it in outer space. So that became the Cosmic Background Explorer satellite. The microwave background had first been spotted back in 1964, but no one had been able to precisely measure it, let alone map how it varied across the sky. This new satellite, COBE, the Cosmic Microwave Background Explorer, would shed new light on its properties. But developing COBE took 15 years and huge efforts. The COBE satellite took about 1,500 people to build. You know, when we started the COBE mission, people still were designing NASA satellites with pencils and pieces of paper. But all this work paid off. The first major discovery from COBE arrived just weeks after launch in early 1990. It was not yet a map, but an analysis of the bands of light, the spectrum, that make up the radiation. John distinctly remembers the reaction he got when he first showed this graph. When I put up my view graph that uh, showed the spectrum of this cosmic background radiation, I didn't say anything, and within moments the entire audience had stood up and was applauding. So I got a standing ovation for a chart. Until then, cosmology had earned itself a bit of a bad reputation. 
there were plenty of theories but not much data to back them up. This chart was different. The data returned by the satellite was indistinguishable from the theoretical predictions. But Kobe's most astonishing finding was yet to come. Our second great discovery was that the universe has hot and cold spots. In Greek, we call them anisotropy. These hot and cold spots were first shown to the world 25 years ago by John's colleague George Smoot. Kobe measured variations in the temperature of the microwave background across the sky. The result? A baby picture of the universe when it was a mere 400,000 years old. And the image left scientists gasping yet again. So Stephen Hawking said, uh, if I remember roughly, um, it was the most important scientific discovery of the century, if not of all time. The map was so important because it showed how the primordial broth of elementary particles had clumped into denser regions. Those regions went on to form galaxies and stars millions of years later. John and George shared the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2006, and Kobe's discoveries made an impression on many young scientists. Among them was Jan Tauber, who had just started a job at the European Space Agency. I was a radio astronomer who had specialized in, in doing studies of our own galaxy, which is, a, from a cosmological perspective, a very nearby object. And suddenly there was this guy talking about the very beginning of the universe. It made an impact in the sense that it, this was clearly big science. Jan soon started an effort to build a European follow-up to Kobe called Planck. Clearly Kobe ushered in a new era you know, where people tried to do better than Kobe, and this was one of the first attempts at that. Missions like Planck could take much sharper and more detailed pictures than Kobe's. But they also confirmed Kobe's results. I was really thrilled that we got the right answer the first time, uh, because in the places where they could measure the same that we measured, uh, the answers agreed beautifully. Thanks to progress studying the cosmic microwave background, cosmology has made giant leaps. It has uncovered everything from the universe's age, 13.8 billion years, to signs of the enigmatic dark matter. So has the microwave background given away all its secrets? There's still one wonderful secret that we might find. We're looking for gravitational waves. This is the question at the top of cosmologists' list. Whether the baby picture of the universe contains an imprint of gravitational waves. These ripples could confirm that for a brief instant, the universe ballooned from microscopic to cosmic size, a theory called inflation. Cosmologists should be able to spot the imprint of these gravitational waves by measuring the polarization of the microwaves. This is the way the light is ordered together. So if we could make that measurement, and if it matches or does not match the predictions, then we will have learned something about those extreme conditions of the early universe. Planck's final set of results is due out before the end of this year, and they will include a map of polarization. So Planck might have a shot at revealing the signature of gravitational waves. Here's Jan again. Planck is going to make a kind of unique contribution to that in the sense that it, it is able to measure this at the very larger scales across the whole sky. If Planck fails to spot the signal, other teams are hot on its heels. But even after so much progress, that picture from 25 years ago is still as magical as ever. No, I still love looking at the picture. 
I am so thrilled that it has started off a cosmic exploration uh, that tells us something about the Big Bang that we never guessed we could know. That was John Mather, who's at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, where he's now senior project scientist, currently on the James Webb Space Telescope. You also heard from Jan Tauber, project scientist for Planck at the European Space Agency. Stay tuned for the news chat, where we give you the lowdown on the march for science. But now, though, it's Curry Locke with our top science tidbits in the research highlights. The possibility of life on Saturn's sixth largest moon, Enceladus, just got a little bit more exciting. Pictures of the moon often show geysers spraying out from the surface. These plumes are thought to originate from the moon's ocean, which lies just beneath the icy crust. In October 2015, NASA's Cassini spacecraft dove through one of these plumes. The geysers contain molecular hydrogen, probably formed from chemical reactions that are driven by geothermal processes at the interface between the moon's ocean and its rocky core. These sorts of reactions also occur on Earth in hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean, where life thrives. The discovery of hydrogen on Enceladus means that it may be a good place to search for life. You can learn more from the journal Science. Animals living in some North American lakes are in for a dangerously salty future. Researchers looked at data on salt concentrations in nearly 300 freshwater lakes in North America they found a steady rise in salt levels in about a third of the lakes since the 1980s. Human activities such as salting of roads are to blame. Even having just 1% of nearby land covered with hard surfaces, like asphalt, increased the likelihood of salinization. By 2050, nearly 100 of the lakes will likely have salt levels that will put aquatic species at risk. You can find the study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Before we get back to the show, we'd like to ask a quick favour. You see, we love getting the most important science into your ears each week, but there's just one problem. We don't really know who you are. Help us in our quest for knowledge by filling in a quick online survey. It should only take a minute or so and will help us reach even more ears in future. Find the link on our website and via Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Right, now on with the show. Materials like graphene can be made in sheets that are just one atom thick. Physicists first made them by pulling single layers off a block of graphite with a simple piece of scotch tape. This flat structure gives graphene and other 2D materials like it some interesting properties. But one crucial property is missing, assumed impossible. Kerry spoke to one physicist who has been looking for it. For centuries, people have speculated about a world without a third dimension. The ancient Greeks philosophized about it. In the 1800s, a novelist wrote a story called Flatland that took place entirely in a two-dimensional world. This world would surely look quite different to our 3D playground. But would the physics be any different? Scientists have only been able to study this experimentally in the last decade or so. The scientific study of reduced dimension is quite recent. This is physicist Jing Xia from the University of California, Irvine. Uh, I would say it's mostly promoted by the discovery of graphene, the first truly two-dimensional material, uh, which now we understand it has very, very different properties, both electronic property and optical property from 
its three-dimensional counterparts. But one classic property is missing from the flat landscape of 2D materials. None of them is magnetic. In fact, a theorem from the 1960s, called the Mermin-Wagner theorem, suggests that it's impossible for a 2D material ever to be magnetic. Uh, so our motivation is really, well, is that really true? One more thing draws Jing's interest in finding out if 2D materials can be magnetic. New gadgets. Where an electronic device depends on the movement of electrons through a material, another class of devices, spintronic devices, rely on the magnetic property of each electron, its spin. Uh, what we're trying to do in spintronic devices in general is that we want to use the magnetic bit or the spin to store information, and at the same time we want to use much, much faster ways, methods, to change and process that information, much, much faster than what you can do in a hard drive. This is very bold of you to go against a theory that's been around for basically 50 years at this point. Uh, I, would, I would agree, yes. Jing and his team, made up of theorists and experimentalists, realised that the original theorem, the Mermin-Wagner theorem, could be tweaked to predict magnetism after all. Then they had to experiment to see if the new version of the theorem was right. They chose to use a material based on chromium, called CGT. When I spoke to Jing, I asked him to explain their magic addition to the theorem, something called magnetic anisotropy. If you look uh, carefully at the proof of the Mermin-Wagner theorem, uh, you realise that they ignored the so-called magnetic anisotropy. Uh, the magnetic anisotropy is basically... Uh, the difference in magnetism along different directions. It would prefer to point to a certain direction. So what we did is that uh, we make sure that the atomic structure of that material guarantees a difference between the north and the south, a.k.a. Uh, magnetic anisotropy. So basically, you knew about this theorem, as everybody else in your field did, from the 60s that said 2D materials will have trouble being magnetic but the trouble with the theory was they'd ignored this property of some materials which is that they have like a, dif a definite way that their magnetism likes to point exactly magnetic anisotropy so you thought well we'll use one of those and we'll see if we can make that we'll see if we can look at that and see if that's magnetic exactly and how difficult was it to do that oh i would say it's actually quite difficult both theoretically and experimentally so theoretically, well, although this is a th simple idea, this is a very famous theorem that we physicists, we study in, I would say, in the introductory uh, graduate courses. So usually we would regard that as a law, right, So which you cannot break. So even thinking about to break some law, I think that's very bold, theoretically. Experimental side, I would say, is even more difficult um, for several different reasons. So first, you have to reduce the material to two dimension. Thanks for the invention of graphene. Nowadays, we know we can use scotch tape. But to um, transfer that knowledge of scotch tape to this uh, CGT material, we encountered many problems that we spent, I would say, more than two years to solve. The second difficulty, experimental difficulty, which is even more challenging is, well, you have this very tiny one uh, layer thick material, how can you measure the magnetism? How do you locate this very tiny flake and then measure its very tiny magnetism, simply because the volume is very tiny? 
So having done all of this then, to tweak the theorem, to make the 2D material, to measure its magnetic property, you found it was indeed magnetic. Exactly. Uh, with our work, we now understand not only you can realize magnetism in two dimensions, but we realize that the magnetism in two dimensions is very, very different from the magnetism in three-dimensional. You can basically engineer the magnetic property of two-dimensional materials simply by using either a external magnetic field or by engineering the structure of the molecule to increase the magnetic anisotropy. That's very cool. And so that just gives you a lot more flexibility, I suppose, in what you can do with it. Yes. And with all these materials, uh, I think finally we have a very, very clear roadmap to achieve the so-called spintronic devices in two dimensions, which can be integrated with the already existing electronic devices in two dimensions based on graphene. That was Jing Xia of the University of California, Irvine. Next, he says they're exploring other materials to see if they can be 2D and magnetic, and they're making devices that sandwich their material under a layer of graphene, and then playing with ways to change and tune the magnetism. The paper can be found at nature.com nature. Time now for this week's news chat, and Ewan Calloway joins us in the studio. Hi, Ewan. Hello there. So we already discussed on Backchat the science march that took place over last weekend, the pros, cons, and all the various discussion that was going on about it. That was before the march. Ewan, you attended the march as a journalist. What was the actual reality of the march like? The reality of the march was it was big. I was at the London March on Saturday morning that went from uh, the Science Museum a couple miles to, to, to Parliament where there was a rally. I think there were about ten to 12,000 people there, lots of people, lots of fun signs, not a lot of like – the way I put it was overt party politics. I think there were a lot of people just saying, you know, basically with really like pro-science messages that we need to – pay attention to knowledge-based inquiry of the world and that sort of thing and not uh, a lot of a lot of causes, at least from what I noticed. Because that was one of the big criticisms before the march was that it might make the notion of science political. Well, I mean, there were, there were some. I ran into uh, some representatives from the local Lib Dem party who pointed out that the other parties were too scared to show up. I don't know if that's actually true. Um, there were some Greens there. I think I saw some some socialists and some communists. But really, it was mostly people just saying we need to respect science as a way of understanding the world. I mean, there are pet issues, climate. I saw some anti-fracking folks. But you know, by and large, it was just kind of respect knowledge was the message that I got from people. And this wasn't the only science march taking place by by any means. I think there were hundreds of them. The biggest one, I, th- I think, was in Washington, D.C., you know, where I haven't seen an official figure, but I think it was tens of thousands, you know, 40,000 or something like that. Paris had a pretty sizable march, Berlin, Munich, you know, you name it, they were all over the world. And what has the response been widely to these science marches? I haven't seen a lot of opposition. Uh, I think there are a lot of people stuck in traffic baffled in central London, I can tell you that. I mean, I think people thought, you know, they were generally a good thing. I detected no opposition. I'm not convinced they've really made a huge difference to anything. Maybe scientists will feel more like they should be speaking out because their 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 worldview or their way of understanding the world is being questioned and devalued by politicians. I guess time will only tell. Well, on a more personal level, what were your favorite signs, the most standout signs that you saw in the crowd? 
I, I like the ones that you had to read into. I think somebody had one that said alternative facts are the square root of negative one, which uh, we don't need Davide Castelvecchi to tell us that that means imaginary. Thank um, you for the clarification. Well, there's a lot of people uh, emphasizing the need for, for funding. Um, girls just want to have funding. WTF, where's the funding? Or a couple that I encountered. I ran into somebody dressed as Dolly the Sheep, who was a cancer biologist, who told me her pet issue, no pun intended, was antibiotic resistance. So say what you will about mixed messages at the Science March, but people were there for a lot of reasons. Moving on from one group of disgruntled scientists to another, this time in China. And there's a location in China that's under threat for mining. What's so special about this place in the first place? So the site is called, I'm going to pronounce this slowly so I get it right, the Du Shantiao Geological Formation, which is in southwestern China on Guizhou province. And it's a site that since the, I think about the, the early 90s, has revealed these kind of microscopic or really small grain-sized fossils that some scientists think are the earliest animals on the planet. And what's important about them is that they're tens of millions of years earlier than the, the so-called uh, Cambrian animals that we see from other formations that we think were the dawn of kind of complex animal life. And they say, suggest that maybe complex animals uh, emerged a little bit earlier than we thought. So this amazing site, all these really interesting, unique fossils, but under threat from mining. Has this mining already started? Yeah, it's been going on. Actually, phosphate mining, uh, phosphate is used in fertilizer, has been going on before scientists found the fossils. And some people uh, have said that the mining has in some ways enabled the discovery of fossils by exposing new uh, sedimentary layers. But apparently, the phosphate mining has really accelerated in the last few years. And some researchers who've worked at this site have you know, been concerned that key areas where they found really important fossils have basically completely vanished. And so they've been trying to be more active about convincing uh, local government that this is a site that needs preserving, while maybe mining goes on next to it. But the discoveries that may flow out of the site are, are really important, and they, need, they need, uh, need protecting. Does it look like they might be able to convince officials? How's it going so far? I think they actually had some success. So these scientists were shocked at, at how much of the site has been destroyed. They organized a, a meeting bringing paleontologists from all over the world to talk about the problem and advocate for a solution. And days later, the local government at least temporarily halted mining while they look for a, a solution. What that solution is, uh, is unclear. The paleontologists have proposed that maybe you could have a field paleontologist there at the, at the mining site just basically setting aside uh, fossils because these aren't, these aren't, we're not talking about like dinosaur bones, we're talking about kind of very small fossils. And so you could just kind of leave them aside and let the mining proceed. One of the organizers of, of these protests really wants to establish kind of a, a geological national park to protect a, a really small area, I think less than two kilometers square from mining. So we'll, we'll see what actually happens there. If paleontologists aren't able to stop the mining and they can't return to the digs at these sites, how much will be lost? How much have they already been able to excavate? Well, one scientist estimated that just about 5% of the fossils in, in the site have been have been uh, excavated. So there's there's a lot more out there, you know, a lot more future nature science uh, PNES papers, all of which the site is, has yielded. Yeah, so a, a lot could be lost. Ewan, thank you for breaking down those two stories. For more on both of them and others, head to nature.com forward slash news. 
That's all for this week, but make sure to check out Backchat for more discussion of the Science March. And keep an eye on your podcast feed for this month's science fiction short. Futures will be out later this week. And don't forget that the link to the survey is on our website and on Twitter. Until next time, I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com. plus Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.